You know, one of the weirder things about getting older is watching society change the things that it finds taboo. Uh, 30 years ago, uh, you, there was no way you could get away with saying some of the things on television that you can today about the area of sex and relationships. But it seems as if there really is only one last taboo in our society, and it is talking about money. <laughs> Uh, in doing some research from this passage, I found that a survey it was connected by a number of banks. Ally Bank had come up with a research that said that 70% of Americans think that it's rude even to talk about money. Um, uh, it's even rude, they think, to talk among close family members. Another study by Fidelity said that 43% of respondents, 43% of respondents, have no idea how much their partner earns. Uh, 36% are unaware of the amount that they have invested, if they have anything invested at all. Another study, yet one from the University College of London, found that people were seven times more likely to talk to a stranger about sex, uh, about affairs, even about sexually transmitted diseases than they would reveal their salary. Let that sink in for a second. Like, you would tell a stranger that you have an STD, rather than tell them how much money, money you make. We might have a thing about that in our society, right? And of course, the pundits love to speculate on why that's the, it's the case. Some people will say that's because we, we hate to look pretentious. Uh, other people say, well, it's, sort of a, it's, it's a way of oppressing the poor because you know, not talking about money is a privilege of the wealthy. But regardless of where you locate the reason for this little oddity, you have to admit there's a lot of risks that come from simply trying to avoid the topic. And I want to talk about those this morning because we're looking this spring at the latter half of Luke's gospel and we're posing this question to the text of what it is about Jesus that people found compelling to leave everything and go and follow him. And what we find this morning is one of the reasons why Jesus is compelling is because he talked about money. Uh, Jesus had lots to say about this incredible window that once you open up can find out all kinds of things about your own soul. And unfortunately, what we tend to find there is an ocean of shame that's there, that's powerfully operating underneath the level of our spiritual lives. But if it's that powerful, would Jesus be worth following if he didn't address it? Well, address it he did. And in Luke 12, we see Jesus unpacking some principles of living in the kingdom that he's bringing to help his people understand their finances. Before I dive into this, back in the late 90s, I heard Tim Keller do a sermon on, the, on a parallel passage uh, that was completely revelatory for me. So by way of attribution, I'm accrediting him with a lot of the information here. But three points I want to throw at you this morning. The power of money. I want you to see the problem of money. And then finally, the purpose of our money. Okay? First of all, notice the power of money because the setting of this story is, happens when Jesus is getting popular. And in the midst of the crowds that are showing up, someone bursts in and says, you know, Lord, you know, tell my brother to divide this inheritance with me. <clears throat> now, wisely, I think, Jesus doesn't jump into some family conflict over dividing up money. Instead, what he does is he uses it as an opportunity to talk about the destructive power of greed. Why? Well, because the family's being torn apart, <laughs> Jesus knows that greed is destructive to human community. It does harm to people. And so he dives into it. One commentator put it this way. When possessions are the goal, people become pawns. 
In fact, a reversal of the created order occurs as those made in the living image of God come to serve dead non-images. Why? Why is it that the Bible, though, and we, in reflection on what the Bible says, are so touchy about our money? Actually, ask it in a different way. Why is it that Jesus talks about greed in a way in which he doesn't talk about any other sin, really? Because Jesus has to come along and say, watch out for all kinds of greed. Look at verse 15. He says, take care and be on your guard about your money. But he doesn't have to say that about any other sin, does he? You know, Jesus doesn't say, you know, watch out lest you murder someone. You kind of know when you're murdering someone, presumably, or, or watch out. You'll be on guard lest you commit adultery. That tends to be fairly clear in that moment, but not greed. Greed can be confusing because greed is the, greed is the hiding sin. In other words, money has this peculiar way of masking its own influence on your life. And it hides. And so Jesus has to say, watch out for greed because blindness to the condition is an intrinsic part of the condition. You know, no one who is greedy feels like they're greedy. No one who is materialistic feels like they're being materialistic, Jesus is saying. And why is this? Well, it's interesting to me to notice kind of how our contemporary culture has kind of made this very, um, even more difficult. And I look at it in, in specifically when it comes to social media. And those of you who know me, I'm not beating up on social media. But I remember the, the first time that the, sort of the, the power of Twitter kind of hit me. Uh, we were in a staff meeting in a, in a different city with some people I was working with. And someone was looking through their Twitter feed during a break. And they said, you know, I just found out that professional golfer uh, Phil Mickelson is at a grocery store just a couple of miles from here. And I remember thinking... Phil Mickelson goes to a grocery store? <laughs> I wouldn't know that a professional golfer goes to a grocery store, but I guess they do. And, but I even said out loud at the moment, I was like, should I know that Phil Mickelson is going to the, to the grocery store? It, it just kind of felt voyeuristic. But here's the deal. There is a generation of people for whom you know, anyone can reach out and touch the Lord's sort of day-to-day life of anybody else. My children interact with their favorite musicians and, and comedians like all the time. <laughs> And the sum effect of it all is that almost everybody knows someone else who is better off financially than they are. Isn't that convenient? It's almost like, like Warren Buffett's existence is such a help, isn't it? It's because, like, well, you know, I mean, I'm no Warren Buffett. I don't have what that guy has, we say. But the truth of the matter is, I heard another statistic that said that one-third of American households surveyed who make over $100,000 a year. A third of them answered positively to the statement or agreed to the statement, I can afford to buy everything that I really need. A third. That means that two-thirds of the households that make over $100,000 a year think they don't have enough to afford the things that they really need. I don't know. Does that like get us in the ballpark of greed and materialism? At least we have to ask the question. Keller has this fascinating discussion about this when he says that the power of money began in the Garden of Eden. When you think about what God gave to Adam and Eve. When God set Adam and Eve in the Garden, He gave them two things. On the one hand, He gave them each other, a relationship between the two. But on the other hand, He gave them the Garden, possessions to have ownership over. And of course, under God's Lordship, those two things can be a great blessing to His people. 
But when mankind falls from his grace in that moment, what happens? Those tend to be the two things that get you in trouble the quickest. Remember my daddy saying this, son, sex and money. That's the best and easiest way to destroy your life. Why? Because God built this that way. You see why Jesus, though, is saying, watch out for the power of money. Be on guard lest you're destroyed by greed. Which means what? It means that God's, Jesus' followers are the ones who ask a lot of questions about their money. Halt! Who goes there, we say? You know, what are you doing? What's out there in the dark? We ask those questions because it's hiding. It's trying to keep itself from us. And so Christians are those who follow Jesus and say to themselves all the time, do I really need that? Do I really, really still need more than I have? Is there a way that I could live more simply? Could we give more money away to other people? Now, the answer to that question might be, no, we simply can't. But not asking the question is not an option among Jesus' followers. Why? Because of the power of money, first of all. Secondly, though, you see that there's also, though, a problem with money. That creates these pathologies that come in the midst of trying to deal with it. Ancient church historian Plutarch said this, Greed never rests from the acquiring of more. Why? Because there's always a pathology. There's this inertia that's pulling us into dysfunction when it comes to wrestling with our greed. And so therefore, you've got to ask questions about the effects. How do I know? Are there signs that can show me that I've been stricken by a struggle with greed. Well, Keller says there's actually three ways in which greed manifests itself in terms of problems in our lives. There are emotional effects, psychological effects, and practical effects. Let's take those three. Number one, the emotional effects of greed. How does that happen? Look at verse 19. The rich fool says, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What's he doing? You know, he's talking like that person that you just can't stand to be around. He's talking, he's doing a little bit of bragging. Emotionally, he's very proud of himself. It's pride that he's struggling with. So that he can look at this self-indulgent life. And I'm, I'm sure that he finds ways to work it in conversations, you know? Those little humble brags. Ah, can't wait. You know, I'm dreading doing my taxes this year. I just made so much money in 2018. And we kind of work our way in there. There's way, and we find that socially disgusting, don't we? Can't stand it when people talk that way. Why? Because greed begins to take over our emotions. So it can come in the form of pride, yes, but it can also come in the form of worry. Being anxious, Jesus says. Look what Jesus says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you'll put on. Why does he say that? I think the reason why he says it is because, as the commentator just said, this totally self-indulgent life of ease that we're longing to all have, Jesus knows that it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It's not real. There is no such life. You know, we're always reaching for this definition of the good life and hoping that we have it. And so we worry. And the emotional life gets churned up by anxiety over reaching something that doesn't exist. The Bible will say that worry is an investment with, that yields nothing, to put it in financial terms. We worry about things that, 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 uh, that, of which we feel so out of control. It's control that we wish we had. And our money reveals that. 
So there's all kinds of emotional effects. But secondly, there's psychological effects as well. The first way in which it comes out is in the realm of psychological security. Money holds out this idea that it will make you secure. I find it interesting that Jesus says, uses the plural when he talks about the kinds of greed, the kinds that exist there. What's he saying? That our hearts need security. And so Jesus starts talking about in verse 24 about the birds who don't sow or reap and yet God feeds them. What's he saying? He's saying money has a way of saying to you, man, things are so unpredictable. You don't know what's coming out tomorrow, but you know what? Make, your, make, make me and you'll be secure. Everything will be fine. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's like, actually, no, it won't. Because your money will go away. Sometimes with incredible ease, given market turns and the other like. And so all of a sudden, Jesus comes and asks this question, what does it profit a man? It's financial language. To gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Money doesn't address the fundamental things that really make life the most difficult. Listen to Keller on this. I thought this was funny. He said, it's great to have enough money that you can just send your personal shopper to go do your shopping. But let me ask you a question. Is the time that you need, that you relieve by not going shopping, is that really what's made your life difficult? No. I'll tell you what makes life difficult. It's tragedies. It's accidents. It's sicknesses. It's broken relationships. It's death itself. And money doesn't do a thing to stop any of those things. The real things that make us anxious. So on the one hand, we think psychologically there's this security thing that greed holds out, but then also there's also a beauty thing. Um, Jesus' illustration about the lilies of the field show that for many people, they feel like money's going to make them attractive. This is how I commend myself to people because I feel worthy. I feel important. People are going to like me and sort of be a part of me uh, part, want to be a part of my life uh, if I've got money. I think it's worth analyzing the inner dialogue, ladies, when you window shop. Like, what's driving the fantasy of shopping for a, that really cute new outfit? What's driving that? Because all Jesus is saying is, watch out. Beware. There might be something operating under there that's bringing pain instead of joy. Thirdly, and finally, we see the emotional effects, the psychological effects, but thirdly, there's practical effects. Jesus mentions two. One is seeking after, the other is storing up. There's first of all a seeking after. He says, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. So that little phrase, seek after, that you have translated is a Greek word that's a little more intense than that. Uh, What it means is, is there are people who are so driven to achieve that they will overwork and overthink and overexert, even to the point of exhaustion and even potentially self-harm. Hmm. Who would ever do that? Who would ever work so much that they actually made themselves sick doing it? Gentlemen, hmm, I'm not just going to pick on the ladies. Gentlemen, is there a number for how many hours that you can work consecutively in a couple weeks? that would warrant a friend of yours who loved and cared about your soul to say, I think you're being greedy. Is there a number? Would we ever assign a number to ourselves? Bet you my family would. So there's a seeking after that's maniacal, but there's also a storing up. The rich fool says, soul, you have ample goods lead up for many years. What's he saying? He's saying he's storing up. Now, mind you, Jesus is not giving some admonition against Saving for your retirement and being responsible in that regard. 
or for your children's education or whatever. What I think he is saying, though, is, is are you willing to ask the question of what you mean by ample goods? What is ample to us? What Jesus seems to be challenging is, is the sense that the, the, the direction of money, as we think about it, tends to want to flow inward. And he's saying it doesn't work well that way, but it's supposed to flow out. So that maybe we might have a discussion of saying, instead of always living at the margins of life, could we, I don't know, create a little bit of space to move the standard down a little bit of what we consider to be comfortable so that I've got some ability to help people with the gleanings in my life. Jesus is talking about getting out from under the tyranny of the worry from our stuff. Causes all kinds of problems, the problem of money. So we see the power and the problem of money. Thirdly and finally, it begs the question, what then is the purpose of our money? What is it there for? Well, I think for the Christian anyway, we see it in verse 33. Look at this. Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. That's a perfect verse to understand the purpose of money because it gives us two things. Number one, it says that the purpose of money is to relieve the needs of the needy, of which you are one, of course. But secondly, it's there to provide us with a metaphor of finding our true wealth in God alone. I want to unpack those two for a second here as we close. Number one, Jesus is saying that the reason why your money exists is to meet the needs of the needy. And yes, of course, that includes you, but sharing of resources among those who count themselves as believers. Y'all, it's Christianity 101. It's one of the first things that was present in the earliest expressions of the life of the church. But notice how Jesus couches it in verse 32. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Okay, now that's where I'm confused. (laughs) Because on the one hand, Jesus, you told me to sell my possessions to create enough margin that I can help other people. But then you tell me to fear not. (laughs) But that makes me afraid. Because how do you know that I'm not going to need that margin in the future in the face of all of life's uncertainty? Ah, But maybe this is the reason why Jesus says, look, it is your Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. We were talking in Sunday school this morning about the fact that the kingdom of God is not that thing that we're waiting for one day, someday to come in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the consummation of the kingdom. But the kingdom is here and now, most vividly embodied in what we have in this room. The church. And so the understanding, I think, was Jesus saying that if you run into trouble because of the margin you've created, the idea was to have the church behind you that would support you in your time of need. That was the idea. But of course, we're too busy worried about talking about money at all. How do we even know if there's people even among our midst who are hurting? Because we don't know each other. Because goodness gracious, we don't ever talk about our money. Acts chapter 2, verse 45 says this about the first Christians. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as had any need. It's a regular part of being a Christian. So there's one sense that my money is there to meet needs. But secondly, it's also there as a metaphor for finding our wealth in God. Jesus puts it another way in verse 21 when he says that anyone who has stored up things rather than learning to give them away... The reason they do that is because they are not, here's the phrase, rich 
toward God. In other words, what he's saying is that you lack, if greed has gotten its way into your heart, your problem is, your problem is not that you don't have enough money. The problem is that you lack inner wealth. That's what we lack. Which, what in the world is that? Listen to Keller on this. He says, does Jesus say that if you sell your possessions and give to the poor, then God will let you into his kingdom? If you sell your possessions and give to the poor, then God will forgive you of your sins and take you into his kingdom and save you? Is that what he says? No. He actually says just the opposite. He says, little flock, you've been given the kingdom. And only if you see that you've been given the kingdom apart from your works, apart from your record, will you then be free to start to give, to sell, to give in radical ways. See what he's saying? He's saying there's a direct correlation between your generosity and your sense of having been dealt with bountifully by God. Miserliness begins with a poverty of soul, a poverty of soul, where we have cast God in the character of a begrudging master, holding his blessings tight to us. I want you to imagine this morning uh, that you are approached by a friend uh, after church who says, I forgot my checkbook and the, the balance to my child being able to go to, uh, that I got to pay to go to RYM this summer is due. Is there a way that you could loan me 50 bucks? Well, you're feeling generous. I mean, the sermon was about it, so I guess I have to. <laughs> so you pull out your money and you give him some money. Well, the next morning you were woken up by television cameras in your front yard. They knock on your door only to tell you that you have won the lottery. The biggest payout in history, it's a billion dollars. And hopefully there's not some goofball near you being like, well, you know, taxes are going to eat that up. (laughs) Why is there always somebody who says that? In the midst of your dancing around, suddenly your phone rings. And so you grab your phone, you answer it, and before you can tell them what happened, it's your friend from the day before. And they're like, hey, I'm so sorry. Um, I really need to get over there, but I'm just a little short right now. What are you going to say to him? $50? Keep your money. Don't you understand? I just cashed in. I'll never be able to spend the money that I have. I've got more than I need. Look, here's the point. You, know, you realize the spiritual illustration there. God has given His people something so valuable, something so treasurable, that it creates wealth on the inside. Here's my question. What is that? Because we all think we know it. Yada, 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 Jesus loves me. But do you know it? Do you know it? Because as soon as we talk about money, the first thing that pops up is that shame that starts to point. And we suddenly get sort of preoccupied with our indebtedness rather than looking at what God has provided for us. But that's not the calculus of the gospel. The gospel is this. The joy is God's delight in you. It's His delight in you that is the greatest, most transformational treasure that you could possibly have. You know, speaking of Warren Buffett, I've mentioned this before. I wonder who buys his birthday presents. I mean, seriously. What do you you get for one of the richest men in the world? What do you... What do you buy him that he could possibly want? Ask the question this way. When are the times when Warren Buffett looks up and says, man, now I feel wealthy? Because I'm going to bet you $5 that it's not when he looks at a spreadsheet. 
Wealth on the inside comes when you find out that someone delights in you. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. That word possession there means more than what it looks like. To be chosen, royal, and holy means that you are God's treasure. That when He looks at you, His people, He feels wealthy. Who owns the cattle of a thousand hills. You are that valuable to Him. He loves you that much. So what does that mean? It means in closing that you'll never be free from the tyranny of your earthly treasure until you see that God has given His ultimate treasure in Jesus. Isn't that what the cross was? Yeah, Jesus lived in earthly poverty, but, but in a sense on the cross, Jesus liquidated his assets on the cross, did he not? So that he could come in and bring a wealth of resources to the souls of his people. So our money ends up sort of pointing away. It's asking us to look at our hearts and to look at our treasure because Jesus says those two things are the same thing. Same place. And so therefore, my treasure is the thing that whenever I think about it, I feel great. And there's something about the knowledge that God treasures you that might actually begin to work against our miserliness to all of a sudden give me treasure to give away. After all, it's just money, right? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, give us the grace of your presence this morning and not just not just that peaceful, easy feeling, but a knowledge that we are adored and loved in you. Because, Father, if you don't, we will continue to be fearful. We'll continue to want to be in control. We'll be grasping at things, hoping that they'll finally make me secure. But when it comes down to it, only you can do that. So would you speak that into our hearts as we sing this closing song? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.